Uh, welcome, y'all. My name is John Trapp, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King. It really is a joy to have each one of you joining us. If this is one of your first times to visit Christ the King, want to just extend a particular welcome to you. Glad to have you. Please let us know if there's any way that we can make uh, your visit to us better. Uh, we want you to, to know the welcome of Christ when you are here. Uh, we are going to do something a little bit different uh, when we read the scripture this morning. So typically I'll, um, I or whoever's reading the scripture will read it in one big chunk and then I'll say um, the word of the Lord and respond, thanks be to God. Uh, this time I'm gonna read a bit of what I'm gonna preach on and I'll say the word of the Lord and you can respond, thanks be to God. But then as, as I preach and as we go along, I'm gonna read um, other bits of this story because it's, a, it's kind of this big overarching story and I really want you to be able to follow each of the movements of this story. So if you have your Bible or if you want to grab um, the Black Bible and kind of follow along with what we're going to be looking at, you can turn in page 897 to John chapter 11. We've been going through the book of John together as a church and we find ourselves in God's providence in uh, John chapter 11. And I'm just going to read verses one through four to start with. So turn your attention now to God's word. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have given us your word and through it that you have further revealed yourself to us so that we know more of who you are. And we thank you that you have given us your word made flesh, your son, Jesus. And so as we look at him, we pray, Father, that you would help us to know more of who you are in your character and help us to see more of how we need you in our character. We pray that you would do this now by your grace and through the work of your spirit. Amen. The first time I really remember hearing someone preach on John 11 was the Sunday following the Tuesday of September 11th. Tim Keller, uh, who was the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian, uh, which is the same denomination as we are here at Christ the King, on that Sunday following the Tuesday of 9-11 in New York City with thousands of people who showed up who didn't typically go to that church opened up the scriptures and he preached from John 11. And uh, I'll tell you a lot of what I'm going to say to you is, is definitely shaped by what I, what I heard Dr. Keller say in that sermon. And I think it's extremely wise that he opened up this part of the scriptures to consider because and I'll say this, this passage, maybe more than any other passage in the Bible, has comforted me personally in my own suffering and places where I have felt uh, emptiness or sadness or pain. This passage shows us God's heart for people who are, who are suffering and who, who are maybe asking a lot of the questions that dredge up inside of us when we are when we encounter hard things in our life, questions like, why is this happening? Or, and maybe you even start to follow that thread, why would God allow this to happen? Why did God even make it 
so that this could be a possibility, that there could be sin that would enter into the world and that there could be suffering that would, and death that would come as a result of sin. Why would God allow this to happen? This, this is surely some of the questions that Mary and Martha are asking as we find them in this passage. And I want to encourage you on a passage, if you've grown up in the church, maybe this is something that you've heard before, to not sterilize the scriptures, to not just kind of, you know, think, oh, I've heard this story before. I really want you to try to step into it and imagine what it would be like to be Mary and to be Martha and to be caring for your brother who is in bed and who is very, very sick. And, And this is your oldest brother, who's the breadwinner of the family. He's kind of the patriarch of the family. And a lot of your own well-being is tied to his well-being. And you see that your brother is very, very sick. And so, I mean, it's, I, don't, I don't often think about this um, with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but they were, they were actually particularly good friends with Jesus. You maybe don't think about that too often, that Jesus just had people in his life that he was buddies with. He'd grown up with them or they were family friends. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus were those kind of people. They knew Jesus. I mean, what a great health insurance policy, right? Like, this horrible thing is happening to their brother. He's like, you know what? We need to send for Jesus. We've seen him heal all kinds of people. We've seen him at work in this before. Send somebody to Jesus. And this messenger comes, and again, just even think about the angst of that. Like, we don't know where Jesus is. Hopefully they'll find him. They're gonna, we're sending them out. We hope that this messenger finds him. The messenger finds him, delivers this message to Jesus. And Jesus, upon hearing it, says, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. When you hear that response to I don't know about you, but in some ways that at first blush sounds a little bit impersonal. You've got these panicked sisters who are so worried about their brother and they send this message and Jesus pontificates about the glory of God. But there's like a real world situation going on here. Is Jesus being cold? Friends, he is, he is not, in fact, his assurance is the best thing that they could hear, that this actually is going to work for the glory of God, that God will be glorified through this. But if you're a cynic here this morning, first off, we're really glad that you're here. You're always welcome here. But maybe you hear that and you're like, that doesn't sound that great to me, the glory of God. Or maybe, maybe you're here and you're in pain and you're suffering or someone that you love is suffering and hearing that this is for the glory of God isn't, maybe that doesn't feel particularly comforting right now. Because for many of us, when we're in pain and we're suffering, it's like right here in our face. It's a little bit like, this is, this is a ridiculous metaphor, okay? But I want you to imagine if I took the Mona Lisa and put it on a table and then took a small ant and put this ant on the Mona Lisa. And we somehow could ask this ant, what is the Mona Lisa like? What would the ant say? I'm gonna use my ant voice, you ready? Um, it's really brown and green and crusty and sticky. I don't, I mean, the ant would have it right here in his face. He couldn't have much perspective at all. But the kids in the first service loved that, by the way. <laughs> the, 
if you asked an art curator, what, what's the Mona Lisa about? What's the Mona Lisa like? They would tell you the history and the themes. There's this mysterious woman. And we know this because um, there's this mysterious background behind her and this mysterious smile on her face, almost like she's in on a secret that we don't really know. They would tell you all the, all the themes and things that, that da Vinci was exploring. But also, if you asked the creator of that painting, if you asked Da Vinci about the Mona Lisa, he could tell you everything, every brushstroke, why he did what he did, what it's about, who she is, he could tell you everything. And for us, what the Bible is telling us is that God sees all of time and space before him. He stands outside of it. He sees it all stretched out before him He made it all. He's the creator of it all. And he knows how it begins and ends. He knows what it's all about. And he's telling us that he will be glorified in it. But for us, when we're here, that is hard. That's a hard message. It's a hard message to hear. It's even a hard message to comprehend. Da Vinci could tell the ant in his ant brain what the painting is about, but the ant wouldn't even understand it because he's got an ant brain. And it doesn't mean that it's meaningless. We're tempted sometimes when we're feeling, when we're suffering, when we're in pain to feel like there's no point to this. This is meaningless. Eugene Peterson is a great definition of the word mystery. Peterson uh, was a Presbyterian minister for many years. He says, mystery is not the absence of meaning. It is the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. Mystery is the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. That means that the fact that that it is mysterious in many ways, it is very mysterious why there's evil and suffering in the world, why why God allowed that to enter into the world. That is mysterious, ultimately but that doesn't mean that there is an absence of meaning in it. It means that we in our ant brains can't understand all of it, even if he were to tell us. So that then begs the question, okay, why, why then trust him? And this story, friends, is going to speak to the reason that we can trust him. So let's keep reading. Let's look now in chapter 11 at verse I'm going to read verse 5 and 6 and then skip over to 14 and 15. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Look at verse 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. and For your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. I want you to look again at verse five and six. They do not seem to make sense that they're together. And John knows it. He knows it, so he, but he's gonna make it really clear in verse five. He says, now, Jesus loved them. Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He loved them, so when he, he got the message and he heard about it, and he heard that Lazarus was sick, he, verse six, stayed right where he was. How do you think Mary and Martha felt about that? When the messenger came back, I delivered the message to Jesus, 
He heard about it. And so they begin waiting. He must be coming soon. And he doesn't. And man, I don't know about you, but have you ever felt that way? I have felt that way. God, I thought you loved me. And I sent for you. Where are you? What are you doing? I I know that some of you are feeling that way today. In, In the midst of pain and sorrow that's in your life and grief and the things that are happening in your family or with people that you love. God, I've sent for you. What, what are you doing? The Bible gives us categories to ask questions like this to God. God, where, where are you in my crumbling marriage? Where are you in my mental health struggles right now? God, where are you in this tragic death that happened too soon to someone too young? Where are you? The Bible gives us categories to ask questions like this. In fact, God even gave his people in the Old Testament songs that said this. I want you to imagine if you came to Christ the King this morning and the first song that we sang sounded like the song that the people of Israel would sing in Psalm 22 when they would would sing together. That was their hymnal. It'd be like their red hymnal that we have sitting there in front of you. They would open up their hymnal and they would sing a song that would start something like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Psalm 22. Can you imagine singing that in a congregation? God is welcoming us to bring those kinds of questions to him. And this is what life can feel like sometimes where there is pain happening and suffering happening and we don't understand it. I, I, I've experienced this with my own children. We've got five little trap kids and it happens every single time. It's time to take them to the pediatrician for the first time and it's time for them to get their shots. And I know what's coming. This little baby who's trusted me their whole life and trusted their mom his whole life, has been soothed by us and we feed them when they're, whenever they're sad, we change their diaper and everything good comes from mom and dad and we're taking care of them. And then we take them into this doctor's office and this person with a needle walks towards them and I can't explain to them what's about to happen. And then when it happens, the baby looks at me with this look of utter betrayal. I thought you were for me. Why are you letting this happen? And I can't explain it. I can't. I I don't even know how to explain how like immunizations work. Even if I wanted to, I can't explain it to the baby. And y'all, there are times where it feels like we have gotten stabbed by the pain in this world. And no explanation would make it any sense but the reason why we can have hope in the midst of it Paul tells us in Romans 5 he says this we rejoice in our sufferings 
knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The reason Paul says that we can rejoice, the reason that we see in this passage that we can rejoice in our suffering is because we have God's love. Even though we may not understand why the suffering is happening, we trust and we hope that we have God's love. And maybe you're looking at this passage and saying, I don't see it. I see that Jesus says that he loves them, but then he doesn't show up. And I want you to see the love of God. And we see that in how he deals with Lazarus' sisters. So look, verse, look first at verse 20 of John 11. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You can almost see the scene, can't you? You see, Martha hears that he's coming. She doesn't even wait for him to get to the house. She hears that he's coming and she marches right out and she looks him square in the eye and says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And do you see how Jesus welcomes that? He doesn't say, how dare you? I'm the second person of the Trinity. Don't question me. He welcomes her challenge. And then he points her to a future hope. He points her to the hope that one day, all the suffering, all the sadness, all the pain, all the death will be wiped out. That one day Christ will bring resurrection. And he says, that resurrection is for anybody who believes in me. Not for, the, not for the really righteous people who believe in me, not for the really perfect people who believe in me, not for the really obedient people who believe in me. It's for anybody who would believe in me because I am the resurrection. I am the one who brings life from death. And this hope is one, I'm not gonna preach a second sermon on this, but this hope is one that is, it's not a resurrection in some far distant heaven, some far away land, some far away place, that one day this place will be made new again. That Jesus, we see at the end of the book of Revelation, heaven coming to earth and our souls once again joining with our bodies made new and right. Resurrection. That's what Jesus points her to, the future hope. And that future is comforting, but what about the here and now? Like, what about today? Well, while Jesus gives Martha this future orientation and hope, I want you to see how he addresses Mary. Look now at verse 32 
It's on the next page on 898. Now when Mary came to, Jesus, came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Now, I hope you saw some similarities between Mary and Martha, but there's also some differences. The first big similarity, did you hear what Mary says? It's almost like you can kind of imagine they've been talking about this at their house. They've been talking about it, about how if Jesus had just come here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. If Jesus had just responded to that messenger that we sent, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And so it pops out of Martha's mouth and it pops out of Mary's mouth. If you had been here, Jesus, my brother wouldn't have died. Where were you? What were you doing? But the difference is that Jesus responds entirely different, entirely differently to her. Because he knows what she needs. While he gives Martha this kind of theological discourse and future orientation and reminds her of her hope, he does something entirely different with Mary and it's something, y'all, that we need to remember and take notes from Jesus on how to grieve with people. Because particularly for Presbyterians who love the sovereignty of God, I love the sovereignty of God. We love trusting that he is, he is in control of all things and he's working things, all things to our good. It's real easy to take out our little stamper, our Romans 8:28 stamp, when somebody is hurting and sad and stamp Romans 8:28 on and say, hey, God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You'll be all right. And just start doing that to people who are grieving And that is not what Jesus does here. In fact, you know what? Jesus doesn't say much of anything. A lot of times when we feel the pressure to say the right thing to someone who's grieving, we're really making it about us. What Jesus is concerned about is not himself, but Mary. He makes it about her. So he asks her, take me to the place where you're sad. Take me to the place you're sad, Mary. Take me to the grave. And she takes him to the grave. And in verse 33, it says that Jesus is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I I wouldn't have gotten this unless I'd heard Dr. Keller say this in his sermon. But it's fascinating. that That is a pretty vanilla translation of that Greek phrase, deeply troubled, deeply moved in his spirit. In other Greek literature, where that Greek phrase is used, it's used to describe the snorts of an angry war horse before it charges into battle. So Jesus sees this horrible thing that has happened. Jesus, through whom all things were created. Jesus, who knows what life is supposed to be like, he sees death He sees the death of his friend and the grief of his friends and he hates it. 
He's angry about it because it's not the way that it's supposed to be. And not only does he get angry about it and hate it, but he sees Mary's grief and it breaks him. And it's, it's the shortest verse in the Bible and one of the most profound. Jesus doesn't get misty-eyed. He weeps. He wails at the grave of his friend. Friends, this is who God is. The author of Hebrews tells us Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Later in John 14, Jesus, when, when Philip says, show us the Father, Jesus says, if, if you've seen me, Philip, you know what the Father's like. God is revealing to us what he's like in our pain and suffering. Look, I'm not Jesus, praise the Lord. But if I'm Jesus in this story, you know what I'm tempted to do? Everyone stop crying. I'm about to blow your minds. Come to the grave. This is gonna be awesome. Come on, look, look, stop, stop crying. I, this is gonna be so good in just a couple seconds. Everyone just, just wait, just watch, watch, just watch. He knows he's about to do that. He's already hinted at it in verse four. He knows that he is about to reveal even more of his glory than they could ever imagine. He knows that he's about to make it all good and right and restored. And yet in the moment, he weeps and he's angry about it and he feels deeply about it, even though he knows that in moments it's gonna be all made right. The God who sees all of time and space spread out before him like a picture, he is with you in this moment in your suffering. Even though he knows that it's gonna be made right, he's revealing to us that he cares deeply about our pain and our suffering now because that's who God is. That's who the God of the Bible is. He's revealing that to us. But look, if he just got sad and angry about our sin and suffering and death, if he just got sad about it but couldn't do anything about it, he'd just be a nice guy. But the story continues and Jesus reveals that he actually is able to do something about it. Look at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he'd said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. This is God in the flesh. Who doesn't just empathize with us in our weakness. He does that and that is a great comfort. But he also does something about our pain and our sorrow. He can do something about it. He has the power and the authority 
And Jesus of Nazareth raises Lazarus from the dead. It is an audacious sign of who he is. And by the way, this was written, the book of John was written during the time of eyewitnesses, people who could say that didn't happen. And if there were people around who could say that didn't happen, Christianity wouldn't have spread the way that it did. This happened. And a dead man came out of the grave. But the story actually doesn't end there. Look at verse 45 through 47. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. Better believe they did. (laughs) Right? But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And they have a conversation and then look at their conclusion in verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This is it. It's the hinge point in the book of John. From that point on, the people who were going to put Jesus to death made up their minds that they were gonna do it. Why trust, why trust that the God of the Bible is the one who's trustworthy in our suffering? A good reason is because his brain is so much bigger than our ant brain. A good reason to trust is because he offers hope of eternal life. A good reason is because he cares about us and demonstrates that he cares about our suffering and our pain. A good reason is because he's powerful enough to do something about it. But the best reason, the most compelling reason to trust the God of the Bible is that he pays for the cost of our resurrection. He doesn't stay far removed saying, well, I've got this big plan, it's, it's really pretty, I can see the whole picture, just trust me. He steps into the story. He steps into the pain. He is the only God who suffers who becomes a man and suffers. And the only way that Lazarus gets his resurrection is that Jesus is willing to go to the cross. Jesus knows that when I I resurrect him, they're gonna kill me. They're gonna wanna kill me. And he does it. This is our hope. This is why he is worthy of our trust because God goes to the cross and he fulfills Psalm 22. He actually quotes it from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus becomes forsaken for us so that we wouldn't be. He steps in, he ultimately answers the cry of Psalm 22 so that we could be reconciled to God and resurrected to new life. This is why we can trust him in our suffering. It's why a man named Nicholas Walsterstorff trusted Jesus in his suffering. Nicholas was a professor of philosophy at Harvard and Yale and Princeton, PhD from Harvard, lost his 25-year-old son in a mountain climbing accident and wrote a book called Lament for a Son. And in it he writes, to redeem our brokenness and lovelessness, the God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power, but sent his beloved son to suffer like us. 
through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. Y'all, this is the glory of God that Jesus was referring to all the way back in verse four. This is his glory revealed that he would be willing to lay aside all of his resources, all of his glory to leave his throne room in heaven and to come down and to become a man and to be lifted up on a cross so that he could redeem us. There's no other God like Jesus. There's no one like him. And he goes to the grave. He's humbled to death on a cross and then he is glorified and exalted. God raises him up. And Jesus says, Anyone who would believe in me, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who would believe in me. This is our comfort. I'll close by, I want to close by reading something to y'all. Um, some of y'all know Kevin Ritz. He was a member of this church for a while. Um, Kevin is a good friend of mine from college. And um, he, he lives in Nashville now where he is an inner city math and rap teacher. And it is awesome what he does. Um, But about a decade ago, when I was the director of student ministry here, Kevin's dad, who he loves very much, um, out of nowhere collapsed and died at a construction site where he was working. Kevin came up and did what I hope any of y'all would feel the freedom to do. And he just he just came to the church that day and cried with us and stayed in the office and made phone calls he needed to make. He was just he just didn't want to be alone on that day, so he was with us. And he wrote um, this rap, which I'm not going to rap. Okay, I'm sorry, but he wrote this, reflecting on the God who meets us in our pain and also offers us great hope. These poems are haunted house. All my ghosts wanted out. Second line, how the parade goes, Dia de los Muertos, all saints, all souls. The funeral marches my town. All hallows eve and I sorrow breathe an autumn breeze of fallen leaves from family tree. That's all this grief observed. Tears blur the words I'm writing down. Pen trickles ink from the well deep. O oh, come thou fount. Grim sickled cirrhosis, our father through the liver. My brother quivered at bloodstained pavement that laid him out. Cataclysm, our captain passed. Madre assembled the driftwood. Ecclesiastes passage, the seasons wept through my sister. Cannon blasts, stomach splitting, healing from outside inward. Torn open yet again at the whisper of remembrance. Listen. Grief ain't stages, just cycles of waves, salty anguish pounding on the shores on our face. When faulty language, the spirit groans like a ship to its grave. Grip the debris, save as the, saved as the current rips us away. Snot heavy sobs when metaphors no longer clever. Denial, anger, bargains, depression, acceptance. The left behind and bereft led me in the steps of the shepherd. Comfort of his staff through the valley of the shadow of death. As brothers and sisters' eyes let their waterfalls flow, held me close when the fog made the path hard to follow. Born on their shoulders, bound up, I was all but broken bones. Known by God who became man to share in our sufferings. He lost his father, his family, and his friends just like me, well acquainted with grief. 
fierce tears for souls shut in Sheol. So this verse could unload the hearse of my hurt by the trunkful. For those who love not their lives unto death, to death are no slaves. They'll be dancing on their graves on the day the dead are raised. Still my heart breaks. Jesus weeps with me. The only sound. Thorns form his crown. To grow, we've got to go in the ground. God has not explained all of our suffering. But through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he has revealed that he hates our suffering and that he weeps over over it so much so that he entered into the world to rescue people, the very people who brought suffering into his world through our sin. And he'll rescue any sinner who will come and look to him in faith for rescue. He is here to mourn with you. He is here to point you to hope. He's the resurrection and the life. Amen, let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. You love him so much. He is your, your treasured, treasured son. What a gift that you would give him to rescue us. Jesus, thank you for showing us more of who your father is through your life and through your death and your resurrection and now ascension. And we thank you that you have welcomed us into your family, Father, Son, Spirit. And we pray, we pray that you would help us as we are in the here and now with all of the suffering and pain right in front of our face, help us to see that you have entered in, that you come alongside us and that you also give us hope for a greater picture for resurrection. Would you give us the faith to believe? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.